Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the podcast of the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Aaron Lansky, and I'm here today with George Ellenbogen, the author of a compelling new memoir entitled The Stone in My Shoe, In Search of Neighborhood. The book is a portrait of the artist as a young man growing up on uh, the teeming immigrant streets of Jewish Montreal. George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So, so let's start with why. Why did you decide to write to write a memoir of your childhood in Montreal? And also, uh, what's the stone in your title, A Stone in My Shoe? Well, let me answer the second question first. Um, a stone, of course, is something that would provoke your attention. You have a stone in your shoe, clearly you feel uncomfortable, and you want to get to the bottom of it. And, and basically, this is what this, this enterprise is about. I mean, the book is ostensibly about the Jewish district of Montreal uh, that I spent my childhood and adolescence in. But it goes beyond that, really. It reaches into the, the concept of neighborhood, uh, community, belonging. Um, so uh, that essentially is uh, the, the product of the stone in my shoe and, and the pilgrimage that it leads to. How, how it got started is very strange. Uh, I mean, had you mentioned, had you asked me 30 years ago whether, whether I would ever write this kind of book, uh, I, I probably would have said no. I mean, I'm primarily a poet. Poetry is, is, uh, is what I've written ever since I was at McGill in the, in the early 1950s. I was at an art colony with uh, uh, my late partner, Evelyn Shaker, also a writer. I'm touring with her book as well as mine. Hmm. And uh, I finished this collection of poems, Morning Gothic. It's a, a collection of uh, uh, new and poems selected uh, from 1970 onwards. Hmm. And uh, I, we had a six-week residency. I sent the book off to the publisher after three weeks and was at loose ends. And... Uh, Evelyn said, I think, uh, with a certain amount of frustration, I must have been pestering her. Uh, she said, well, why don't you write about Montreal? She said, you're always talking about it. And um, so I started to think about what was central to my experience in Montreal. And when I got back to Boston, I uh, started navigating through photographs, um, um, old diaries, um, uh, memory, and... Uh, Actually, and found some uh, some tools that were enormously helpful. Uh, Level Street Guide, for example, mm. which mm. permits one to excavate into the Montreal of the 1840s. That, that's how you knew your apartment had 17 residents before you. <laughs> <Yeah>. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. See. You can actually track people down and their occupations. Uh, you can get a sense as to how the Jewish community moved from where it, where it was originally, right by the river, to where uh, where it it. Uh, it was when, when I was uh, a Montreal right, right. resident. So, so let's describe the neighborhood. And, and uh, this is the main, right? This is around St. Lawrence. And, I, uh, I grew up one block west of the main on Clark between Rachel and Duluth. And, uh, and we should explain, this, this is the, the, the neighborhood that many of our listeners are going to know from the work of Mordechai Rich. Uh, uh, St. Urban Street's, what, a block over from you? Absolutely, is that right? yeah. absolutely, yeah. And Irving Layton. Right. Um, um, I think, Aaron, I'd have to describe it as a ghetto in much the same way uh, that I would describe, let us say, the ghetto in Vilna or Wodge or, or, or Warsaw. On my street, my, my block, for, for example, uh, Clark between Rachel and Duluth, there was one non-Jewish family. Uh, at Barron being high, uh, there were among 
1,100 pupils, no more than four or five or six that were not Jewish. So it really was a a homogeneous uh, district. And when I went to McGill, uh, which was really only half a mile away or so, it was like going to another country with no passport. (laughs) All right, let's let's stay let's stay in the neighborhood first. We're going to get to McGill in a little while, but uh, what did the neighborhood actually look like? Because I I think it's fairly unchanged now, just you know architecturally at least, right? That's, Although the residents are quite different. That's right. Yeah. Lots yeah. of uh, row houses, three deckers, right? Uh, uh, broken up, and uh, if one looks at uh, uh, street maps, and Montreal is fortunate in having. Maps of the city, uh, there's one in 1894, 97, 1907, 1910. You can see how the district was filled in. And, and the maps are very useful because they're color-coded. Uh, little, little geometrical shapes that are yellow uh, point to houses made of wood. Uh, and huh. in pink, brick or stone. And the building code in Montreal changed in 1904. They adopted the building codes of New York and St. Louis and so on. And after a point, you see fewer and fewer yellow splotches and more and more pink. And now, of course, it's uniformly pink. Right, but uh, unlike uh, New York or other cities, the staircases are on the outside. What's that all about? That's right. Yeah. Now, uh, I got this uh, explanation from Susan Bronson, who is Montreal's eminent architectural historian. Apocrypha has it that uh, those staircases were built outside so that uh, as to discourage necking in public and so on. But Susan's explanation, which was probably, uh, I think, uh, is is more convincing, is that um, uh, heating uh, heating space is rather expensive. And, uh, you know, if you didn't heat all of that inside space that contained only stairways, why do it? Therefore, you have staircases outside, which add a lot of charm to the city. And, and of course, the delight to look at, except in the winter. I was going to say, the kind of thing you'd expect from New Orleans or something rather than uh, Oh, there has been in the winter. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of my first memories is my father basically going down bump by bump. and uh, Yes, with you uh, in his arms, however, though, right? And I was yeah. laughing, as <laughs> right. a matter of fact. That's an early memory. <laughs> yeah, I like that. You have, you have a great uh, eye for these kind of telling moments, and that one stuck with me. That's really nice. So, so you know, if most of our readers know these, or our listeners know the, the neighborhood from Duty Kravitz and St. Urban's Horseman and books like that, right. how, uh, how accurate is Richler's portrayal of it, and how does your book differ in the way you uh, approach the whole I'm ashamed to say, you know, because Richler was at, actually, he just graduated from Barenbeing when I started. I have not read any of his novels. Um, I've seen a movie of one, and I've read several of his articles, and I've heard him speak on occasion. I, I think that might be a pleasure that I, that I, uh, uh, that I, that I save for, for, uh, for, for, for coming years, perhaps when I'm no longer <laughs> able to write. Um, Irving Layton, of course, I do know very well, and right. and, uh, and his, uh, I mean, his portrayals of Montreal are the, the Montreal that I know, with with um, most of the people living there, people who worked in the textile factories that 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 are still still standing. They're used for different purposes now. Um, it, it was a working class district, and you know the the curious thing now is that this district, which is referred to as the Plateau is a district that's attracted lots of artists, and, and I gather uh, that what's happened is that the, uh, 
basically the guts of the dwellings have been have been extracted and uh, and they've been reconfigured, but the facades are still the same. Mm. Uh, and you know, when when I walk down uh, Clarkson, which I do from time to time, I, I get back to Montreal pretty frequently. My English language publisher is in Montreal, mm. and lots of family there. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll walk down that street. I actually have rung the doorbells of the two houses that I lived in and looked inside. They permitted to come inside, permitted me to come inside and take photographs. But you know, the lumberyard wall is still there that we played uh, uh, all sorts of uh, games against uh, with <laughs> sponge balls and, and tennis balls. And, and it had a kind of intimacy then. Now it seems to be as aloof as a side of a museum. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but it, it, it's changed. I mean, here are people walking down the street and they're speaking a language that's not, not uh, English or French or Yiddish. Uh, so as often happens... What, what, city, what are the languages now? Well, after I left, about maybe a couple, of, uh, a couple of decades after I left, I gather the area was largely Greek and Portuguese. Right, um, right. And... I don't know why I get the impression, but I do that that the area is, still has a significant Portuguese population. Right. I think so. Great. So, 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 we've established that in your childhood, and the years in which you're growing up were when, when that you were living there. I was born in 1934, and I left. Uh, that's the only area I knew until we moved. Uh, when I went to the university, uh, we moved to NDG. So, Notre Dame uh, and, yeah, and, right. and that's when. Um, a very the Jewish district changes. Yeah, basically. a very different neighborhood, right? A yeah. very different neighborhood. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, so, so let, let's go back to the main though, and 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 in that neighborhood, you know, your neighbors were all Jewish. I assume your friends were mostly Jewish. Absolutely. How much of your world though was Jewish? Meaning, did you share in any of the Yiddish newspapers, the theaters, the library, the other Jewish institutions of your parents' generation? Did that have any meaning for you and your friends? It's an interesting question. Um, I said that the uh, the area was homogeneous in the sense that it was populated by Jews, but they were Jews of different stripes. So that goes without saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Be like two Jews getting on a bus. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so I mean, there were uh, there were Jews. I remember the family who lived upstairs from us uh, were very observant, and in that little yard, which uh, 50 years before had been used for stabling horses, hmm. and which had you know, weeds, burdock, broken glass, rats, basically, they would come in and they would set up a sukkah at, 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 hmm. during the holidays, and the rats would retreat to it. I think they were intimidated <laughs> by the patriarch's beard. They retreated <laughs> to sides of the uh, the yard. But uh, ranging from that on the one, one extreme to... Uh, people who were active communists. As a matter of fact, that district, the one district of Canada that had a communist representative sitting in the House of Commons, Fred Rose, for two terms. Sitting in Ottawa, you mean? Sitting in Ottawa. Wow. Yeah, wow. he was our representative. Um, so it, it was, uh, I, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the only thing that really uh, we, we held in common is you know, our ancestors were Jewish, basically. So um, and then there were you know, there were you know, there were Jews who attended services um, on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, like myself. I mean, right. I I don't I don't see my parents as uh, even even in retrospect as being p particularly pious. They were conventional. So um, 
we didn't keep separate dishes and so on, although we never mixed meat and dairy products in a particular meal. And it's very curious. Uh, I mean, I don't see myself as observant, and yet that, uh, that dietary restriction has fastened itself off to, onto me as a kind of as a as a, uh, as a as an aesthetic. I mean, I just uh, I right, can't right. conceive of uh, putting milk into a meat dish uh, in any shape or form, or having it as as to to accompany a meat dish. Yeah. So, so you describe your uh, rather brief foray at the Folkschuler at the the Yiddish school in the neighborhood oh, oh, oh. when you were eleven. You entered. Is that right? Uh, must have been between 11 and 12, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so h- first of all, how come your parents waited so long to send you there? And secondly, um, you know, is it true that you uh, ended up taking a swing at one of your teachers and that's yeah. why you left? Yeah. Do you see me <laughs> blushing? <laughs> <laughs> I should be. And, and, and I, I feel so badly about it in retrospect because I understand <laughs> the teacher was a writer or an individual who was sort of active in the Jewish literary community. Oh, and the I, teacher at whom you took your swing, yeah, you mean? Yeah, yes, is, right, isn't right. that terrible? <laughs> I mean, I feel you know, that I, I there's a penance I'll have to do right, for so, that. So why did you do it? What, 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 what well, compelled I, you? Yeah. I was a pretty obstreperous kid. And, and uh, um, you know, we, we spent... Uh, all day in school, what we called English school, or the, the schools run by the Protestant school board, uh, and that was what, from 8.30 to 3.30, and I really disliked school. I mean, the only things that, that interested me were um, history, geography, and English, because they took me out of that reality. Uh, you know, I mean, I went from Clark Street between Rachel and Duluth to Mombasa and right. Ulaanbaatar and, uh, and uh, you know, different historical periods. Mm-hmm. It was a wonderful escape. Uh, and I think I was always fascinated by voyaging. I mean, even down to, you know, Radisson and Grosayet, the, 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 uh, the, the uh, coureur de bois, basically, who went down those those rivers into the Canadian in, in interior. Uh, anyway, the, the thought of then leaving um, uh, school at 3.30 in the afternoon, and there's so little daylight left. I was going to say, it's dark at 3.30 in the wintertime in Montreal, about, right? Just yeah. about, and yeah. to have to spend the next two hours in, uh, in, uh, at the Volkshule, uh, I was very, very unhappy. And, and yet, as I mentioned in the book, the atmosphere at the Volkshule was much more congenial. I mean, it was bright, we sang songs, uh, uh, yeah, you know, there was a kind of a, a sense of levity there, um, and, uh, as opposed to... Uh, the dingy uh, uh, corridors of Mount Royal and those steep wooden stairs. Yeah, Mount Royal's your elementary school, that's right? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, uh, I um, graduated from elementary school in 1947, between 12 and 13. So basically, I was going to elementary school then, mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, anyway, I, as the book mentions I got I took a swing at the teacher. I got uh, after uh, the uh, principal and the, the teacher had a conference with my parents. It was decided that it would be in everyone's best interest if I removed from the school. And of course, I pretended to be disgraced, but I was I was ecstatic. I was able to go home and to play with the other kids and uh, and and to listen to my favorite radio programs. Um, um, and then, of course, my, there was no way my parents were going to let me escape uh, having a bar mitzvah, and and uh, um, and that that was an adventure in itself. Uh, All right, and then you went on to to Baron Bing, of course, right? Which, which, for those who read literature, know it sort of ranks up there along with Wequaik High School and the work of Philip Roth as one of the kind of 
you know, the great venues where Jewish kids went to, uh, you know, make it in the world and, and to get an education. Yeah. Uh, you, you observe, though, that, that, you know, although most of your classmates came from immigrant homes and often very poor homes. Uh, absolutely. Uh, nonetheless, Baron Bing ranked among the best schools in the whole province when it came to academic achievement, right? I, I think to, uh, to understand Baron Bing fully, um, you have to raise up... Um, what Matthew Arnold, the 19th century, British 19th century poet and essayist, had to say about his dad, Thomas Arnold, and Rugby Chapel, which was one of the stellar schools in England in the 19th century. Now, Thomas Arnold felt that um, he had something special there in the palm of his hand, and he, he saw it basically as a school for um, turning out... Um, uh, Christian gentlemen's, uh, gentlemen with a strong sense of purpose basically would have a transformative effect on, on, on whatever milieu they happen to find themselves in. Hmm. Uh, and I felt that way about Baron Bing. I mean, these were working class kids, parents who had no very little formal education themselves. Um, the individual who introduced me at uh, uh, my Canadian lunch at the Jewish Public Library was. Joseph Nuss, high court judge mm -hmm. in the audience, was another of my school chums, Harvey Yaroski, who was Canada's eminent lawyer, uh, uh, who represented, uh, I can't remember his name, General Dallaire, the individual who represented the United Nations force in Rwanda. But uh, the, the, the school uh, really has uh, turned out so many individuals who are prominent uh, as uh, men of letters uh, and uh, also for distinguished work in the yeah. sciences, in all fields. So, so uh, t t tell us one anecdote from your high school days that will kind of uh, help our listeners to understand what this world really was like. Well, to give, you, to give, to give them a sense of the range of the school. Okay. On the one hand, um, there was um, a fierce commitment to excellence, whether it was in the school choir which contained f about 550 voices, half the, uh, the kids in the school, wow. or uh, the, the, the final, uh, the results of the, our, our matriculations, our final examinations, where out of the first 10 places, uh, you might find four individuals who went barren being high. So that was one part of it. Um, there was, uh, we were also very obstreperous kids. I mean, we had no patience for teachers, we referred to our teachers as masters. We had no patience for teachers um, who didn't have absolute ma mastery of their disciplines. Hmm. And, and I mean, we would do awful things. There was, well, we, well uh, for, for example. Yeah. For example, uh, we had a physics teacher who was deaf, and, and we learned to speak without moving our lips. We had a chemistry teacher who would bluster, nothing goes over my head but the clouds. And for him, we staged a, uh, we staged a fake stabbing with an effusion of watery ketchup. <laughs> and uh, when, uh, someone w when the principal came to the classroom, we found the students sitting there, everything had been cleaned up and so on. And it, it really never occurred to us that, that our, our behavior was, was cruel, thuggish. Um, but I, I guess... Um, we we had uh, um, we had a particular uh, particular uh, what um, uh, assumption that that the t 
teachers had to be teachers. And if they didn't, didn't we gave ourselves free reign. And my <laughs> God, you know, we would plan these disturbances with the care of thieves casing a bank. <laughs> so, so did you see yourselves as Jews first or as Canadians first? That's an interesting question because I remember uh, for the hell of it just asking my dad, you know, how he defined himself. And he never said Canadian. Jewish was what he said. And, and, and he, had, he, he never spoke with affection about, you know, Canadian politicians, the Canadian government. The only time I've ever heard him speak with affection about a political figure was um, thinking, thinking back to his childhood in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was what it was when he was a boy. And, of course, uh, it was the Emperor Franz Joseph. Right. And he referred with I mean, great affection in his voice, Mein Kaiser Franz Joseph, and so on. I never heard him using that, that uh, intonation or, or the, the, that kind of phrasing, uh, talking about uh, a Canadian politician. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I think I think in the uh, panoply of European monarchs, Franz Joseph was better than most. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For the Jews. Yeah. For the yeah Jews. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, where there was a lot of uh, a lot of the opposite tendency in uh, in uh, in uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I'm thinking of the mayor of Vienna, Karl Wegers, for instance, right. who uh, whom Hitler claimed as an early inspirational figure. Um, as to myself. Uh, I th I'm not sure what I would have said as a child. I mean, I, I wouldn't even have thought of it. It, 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 it probably would have maybe Jewish before Canadian, but it was more neighborhood. I mean, that right. was my country. Okay, but then you left the neighborhood, as you just told us. You know, when you I went to McGill, basically. Li literally a half a mile away, right? And, it was, and another world. Another country without a passport. So, so what was that like? Were there many Jewish kids there when you got there? Uh, a lot of a, a lot of Baron Bean kids, and those were the kids that I tended to hang out with. Even at even at university, absolutely. Joe Nuss and Harvey Orosky and so on. Those were friendships actually that stayed. They became lifelong friendships. Um, but then I also came into contact with people who were writing, uh, uh, people with Anglo names and so on. And the, um, well, one Ron Sutherland did actually publish a number of books. He's been dead for mm -hmm. several years. Talented individual. Um, but it was exciting for me. I mean, my, I, I think about it. I mean, my, my, my father had left his European shtetl, uh, had to leave after World War I, um, got a job shoveling uh, boat, uh, coal on a boat out of Hamburg, jumped ship in Montreal on the hmm. return voyage. The ship sank. My mother came with these people with no education or almost no education, sort of climbing over the boulders of a new continent to establish right, right. themselves. And here I was able to study theology, psychology, <laughs> sociology, to read Goethe and Dostoevsky and Gide and James Joyce. What a heady experience that was. Uh, must have been. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Did you know anything about Jewish literature when you got there, meaning modern Jewish literature, but both Jews and Canadian letters, but but also uh, you know the role of Yiddish literature, which of course loomed very large in Montreal. Right, yeah. right, right. As I was mentioning to you, it's very interesting. Of course, um, at McGill, I studied under Louis Dudek, who was then we look back on and now as one of the grandfather Canadian poets. So of course, I knew the word, the work of uh, A. M. Klein, A. M. Klein, Abe Klein. Uh, Miriam Waddington, uh, Irving Layton, um, uh, Eli Mandel, who was uh, somewhat older than myself. And yet, I'm sure just living 
a few blocks from where I grew up, there were uh, uh, writers like Ida Mays, Sholem Stern, uh, Siegel. And I've looked oh, sure. at the work now, actually, and, and uh, the, the little bit that's been translated into English. And, and I, I so regret not having, uh, having read their work. And they, they were writing, I guess, in the 40s. Oh. And uh, by that time, uh, it seems to me the audience for Yiddish is diminishing, although there's a large Jewish community. Although there was I mean, a huge influx after the war of, of great writers, you know, who, who came to Montreal, right? Uh, who do you think? Great Yiddish writers who, who ended up in the city. Yeah. But I, I didn't know This them. wasn't part of your didn't, world, though. I didn't right? know them. And, yeah. and again, I mean, I mean, how many, what percentage of a population reads poetry, whether it's Pope writing in the right, 18th right. century? Well, but we're talking novels and we're talking plays and memoirs and all, yeah, all the other yeah, forms of literature. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah. But I, mean, I guess what I want to understand is, but, you know, if I think of the role of the Jewish public library in Montreal, which was in your neighborhood back in those that's days. That's right, right, on Esplanade. Before it moved to yeah. Snowden. Yeah. Right, right. So that was not a cultural center for Canadian-born young people, right? It was more for an older generation? I can't remember. I think I went to the Jewish public library only a couple of times. There, really? was, a huh. y- oh, there was a library at the YMHA, which was just across the street, right. basically. It right. was on Mount Royal, and I tended to use that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. It's something that I've not looked into, but I, I, it, and, and I... I shall, actually. It interests me. I wonder yeah. to what extent, for example, uh, did the Jewish public library have readings and have uh, an open forum for those writers as the Jewish public library now does, basically. Right, um, right. Yeah, f- f- it's a fascinating but, phenomenon. But the picture yeah. I get, and you see it in their work. I mean, there's a sense of aloneness in their work, of unconnectedness. Uh, hmm. And hmm. Uh, it. I find it such a... Um, uh, such a, a heartwarming piece of information to know that this individual uh, Quebecer, traditional Quebecer, Pierre Anquetil, is translating these Jewish writers into French. I mean, he is raising them up and introducing them to a large audience. I think it's a wonderful thing. So uh, we call this a Heintegevelt. It's a new world, right? I guess, yes. He's br- he, I mean, he basically is chipping away at that wall. Yeah. And yeah. there's daylight there. Yeah. So, so later in your life, you left Montreal, moved to Boston? Boston, yeah. Right. So h- how does the American Jewish community strike you as being different from that dense, you know, Jewish neighborhood, densely Jewish neighborhood of your, of your childhood? And, and why do you think you're still thinking of Montreal? Is, is something about it, you know, fundamentally different from the world in which you're now? Well, that, that's the yeah. second part of your question is a, is a profound question, actually. I mean, it's... Um, it's maybe the answer to that is how the book how the book gets written. Uh, the first part, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that I live in a Jewish community, although my immediate neighbor happens to be Jewish, and uh, a few doors down is someone who uh, went to Herzliya, where I taught at in Montreal, actually for a year. Um, but I guess my community my community is now is a community of writers, basically right. coming from different a variety of backgrounds. Um, as to what um, to what what brings me back, not only for this book, but really from time to time to Montreal is, I, you know, I think it probably is what brings us all back and to, to make, you know, and compels us to look at old photograph albums, 
to look at what our parents have left behind. You know, these are the things that shaped us, basically, that, that, that construct our, that, right. that, that constitute our personal architecture. And uh, just as, you know, sometime on a rainy day, you, you, you go to maybe the Mosaleva Gala in Plaza Dia in Ravenna and spend time looking at all the mosaics and so on, I think there's a compulsion to look at a place that you've been, that you have some memory of, but maybe not the total picture. And you simply go from area to area to area to area, noticing what you've noticed, but possibly seeing all of these things in a different light and making new connections. Wonderful. Well, listen, thank you, George Allen Bogan, very much. Uh, his wonderfully readable book is called The Stone in My Shoe in Search of Neighborhood, published by Vehicule, is that correct? Vehicule. Vehicule Press in Montreal. You've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, tune in to our website, www.yiddishbookcenter. That's all one word, yiddishbookcenter.org. Our producer is Sarah Bleichfeld. I'm Aaron Lansky. Zaymish Starkengesund. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.